Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Willowburn. Welcome to the seventh letter that uh, John wrote to the churches in Asia Minor. I might just pray before we begin. And while I'm, uh, while I'm praying, just think about this question. Sometimes the military comes out of me a little bit. What is the greatest threat to your faith? That's kind of the thing that uh, we military people like to do, assess the greatest threat to a particular mission or whatever. So I'm sorry if it sounds a little bit serious right from the start, but it kind of is serious. So just have a little bit of a think about that. What, what would you say if someone said, well, what's the greatest threat to your faith? What do you think it might be? Persecution or maybe false teaching, maybe a whole bunch of different things. So just have a little bit of a think about that and let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the crystal clear lucidity that it brings to our souls. I want to pray, Lord, that it will be like a mirror today, that we hold our own lives up against it. Lord, you don't intend that we would go away crushed, smashed to pieces, but you do intend that if there is pride and hardness that you'll break that, you'll break open the fallow ground so that we might know you properly and we might know the reality of who we are and the reality of who you are. So speak to us, Lord, and just this humble little offering that I bring, that I've prepared, I just pray, Lord, that it would really encourage your saints, would encourage my brothers and sisters. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, an equally important question, I think, is what is the greatest hope for your faith? There's a threat to your faith, and there's many threats. There's a great threat, as I've already alluded to, and then there's this hope. What's the greatest hope to your, to your faith? And I guess we could personalise it and go, well, what is the greatest threat to your living relationship with the living Lord Jesus? And what is the greatest hope to your living relationship with the living Lord Jesus. Because as soon as we talk about faith, sometimes we tend to just objectify it into this kind of thing. But this thing that we call faith is what connects us to the Lord Jesus and brings us into relationship with him. So we really should, I think, understand what the greatest threat is and what the greatest hope is, which brings us to Laodicea, which is the seventh church. And you might want to open up there now if you haven't already, uh, Revelation 3, 14 to 22. This is a church that out of the seven, I believe, faces the greatest threat and also experiences the greatest hope. But before we go there, I thought we'd go through a little bit of revision. Since this is the seventh church, this is the last church, and this is also the hinge upon which uh, the literary structure of Revelation turns. So it goes from personal letters to the churches. It goes from an introduction to who's writing these letters, the Lord Jesus, and then it turns into... What's going to happen? The end is nigh. And so this is really important, this church here. In some ways, Jesus saves the worst for the, the last. Sorry, the worst for last. You're ahead of me. You got me. The worst for last rather than the best for last. The worst for last. But in some ways, hopefully you'll see as well that there's a great hope here. There's something that's really special. So a little quiz. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to put up little excerpts about doing the words and what we've learnt over the last seven sermons or so, or last six sermons. And I really encourage you, uh, before we get into our break and we go into the Kingdom series and then we get back into Revelation after Christmas, I really encourage you to maybe have a listen online at willowburnchurch.com for the seven churches series. Like just go through and listen to them again. I just feel that, like you'll really be encouraged by that. We've had some awesome times in the Word. Uh, you know, we've had Ben share, we've had Raji, we've had Rick share from those seven churches and there's been some really special times. So I really encourage you to revisit those um, and you'll see how all these tie, uh, tie in, hopefully. So does anyone have a go at where this excerpt comes from? Go through the open door. Go through the open door. 
Philadelphia, well done, we had that last week. That should be fresh in our minds. Revelation 3, 8, it says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So Ben took us through that, talked about the uh, obstacles to going through the door, shared with his brother Andrew. That was really good. Go and have a listen to that one again. I Just as a little bit of a parenthesis, sort of bracket statement here, uh, this one was really special to me because many years ago when I thought I was about to fail pilot's course, my mum sent me this verse, uh, Behold, I've set you before you an open door. And to me, it was a real application that when God puts something for you to do, whether it's in the physical or the spiritual, then only he can shut that door. And I really should have failed pilot's course, but instead, um, instead the door was open and he got me through. And that's a whole other story. Some of you have heard that before, but she commissioned a local artist to get a little painting done up of me flying in a helicopter to our farm and so she'd taken a photo of it and she painted it she got it painted which was really cool and I've still got that I might even post it on the church site so you guys can have a look at it so it was really encouraging to me I just wanted to thank Ben personally for reminding me of that I've set before you an open door now I'm going to share two articles with you today this one one's from the Australian this one could have been in the Australian it's from an anonymous author who shall remain anonymous for now and it's sort of uh it sort of had the theme of uh, tying into Narnia and the wardrobe and how oftentimes um, we want to go through a wardrobe and see that there's an entrance. Does everyone know Narnia? Maybe not everyone does. And this person, like me, would often hope that, <laughs> that there was an opening. You know, have a look in the, in the closet or the wardrobe and instead there's just a hard wall there, no entrance to the snowy fields of Narnia. But anyway, this does, uh, I think, tie in a little bit and that's what I often do when I'm preaching. I listen to what Lord brings me, uh, whether it's in circumstances or other articles, and I often find they just tie in so well. So in terms of Philadelphia, um, this is what this person wrote. Could have been in the Australian, maybe one day it will. As I looked at the dust-covered trophies, awards and medals tucked away in the drawers, I found no fulfilment there. Instead, I found that the same wardrobe wall that led to nowhere, a place where I hoped the door would appear that would lead me to somewhere fulfilling. All along, I'd been measuring my life by a faulty paradigm, one that evicted God from the equation. It was here, staring at a door that had been firmly shut and I angry at God that I realised that only he could open the door. So often we think that we hold the power simply because we can turn the knob, but he is the one that unlocks the door and makes it available. Anything in this world often ends up in ruins and we get so angry with him when he gets in the way of our perfect pursuit of nothingness a pursuit that leaves us hopeless. In him, I finally realised I could never be average. Go through the open door. There is an open door. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. How about this excerpt? Overcome by the repenting of the Balaam spirit. So get rid of the Balaam spirit that's amongst you and overcome. I can see people flicking back. <laughs> that's all right. Which church is this one? Starts with a P and it's not Philadelphia. Pergamum. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there that hold to the teaching of Balaam. And then he says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we saw how that was immorality and how that was this idea of just do whatever you want. Didn't matter as a Christian, this sort of licentiousness, this cheap grace idea. And he said, repent. That was to Pergamum. How about this one? Do not be afraid. Be faithful. Do not be afraid. Be faithful, even to the point of death. Raji brought a Smyrna. 
He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I'll give you a crown of life. Here's an easy one, hopefully. First love first. Ephesus. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Again, I just encourage you guys to go back and have a listen to those ones. That first love first, we decided to make a theme for uh, pretty much the first half of this year. And we went through that series on the Holy Spirit. Again, encourage you to go back and have a listen to those. First love first. And then this one. Hold on. Don't tolerate the Jezebel spirit. No, not Sardis. Thyatira. 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 I said Thyatira. Now I've got to say Thyatira. I don't know. It's not like we can ask any of them how they pronounce it. So I might just go with Thyatira or Thyatira, whichever one comes to mind at the time. Um, Now I say to the rest of you, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on, on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. How about this one, the last one? Awake. Wake up. Sardis. Revelation 3, 2 to 3. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So there it is there. First love first. Don't be afraid. Be faithful. Overcome. Watch out for the spirit of immorality. Hold on. Stay awake to the spiritual realities. Go through the open door of ministry that is open to you. They are all the messages of the churches to revel, uh, in Revelation. And why? Do you remember what the big why? We've, we've answered this a few times. Why? Why would he be saying all those things? What, what's the imperative? Do you remember? It's because as this... Um, structure of Revelation flips over now to all these visions and dreams and symbols and apocalyptic revelations. There is basically a fire coming. The end is coming. There's a testing, a trying, a judging fire that like a a real furnace will determine the real you. Just like a real furnace gets rid of all the dross and what is left is the real uh, metal. So too with you. So because the Lord Jesus loves his churches so much and he loves the people so much and he knows that many of these churches are about literally to face their end, these are the things that he says to them. And this is a really good question, I think, for anyone to answer, no matter what spiritual journey they're on. What does everything I do mean if everything is about to come to an end? So if I'm about to die or if the world for some reason is about to end, what does everything I do mean? And so what Jesus is saying in all these churches, uh, to all these churches is make sure that the real you is connected, is abiding, is nourishing itself on the real God, on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are awake, that you are ready, that you are dependent. That's why he says all these things that at times sound so firm and tough. He doesn't muck about. Make sure, make sure, do the words, do the words. Don't just think the words. Don't just feel the words. Do the words. Be ready. And that leads us to this last church, the seventh church, to Laodicea. And like I said, it appears that he saved the worst for the last. And what's going to be said to it? Well, 
what's going to be said to it? I kind of feel the weight of it. I feel like it's just a massive thing. It's, uh, it's something that you and I deal with every single day. You, you've, you've already dealt with this. You've dealt with it all week. You've breathed it in all week, this great threat that I'm talking about. And it's, it's in many ways, it's heavier than what's said to any of the other churches. So if you haven't already swiped to Revelation 3, uh, 14 to 22 or 16 to 22, uh, just make sure you're there now. And as I read these passages and as we read them together, let's remember our memory verse, that blessed is the one who reads aloud the, ver- uh, the, the, the prophecies in this book and blessed is the one that hears it and blessed is the one that takes it to heart. That means obeys it and does it because the time is near. So this isn't just about you going away, analysing, dissecting. This is about you going away, saying to the Lord, what do you want me to do? But I want you to uh, have this question hovering at the back of your mind. What's different? What is different in the way that that Jesus addresses this church? There's something fundamentally different to all the other churches, okay? Just don't answer now, but just let's read together. Here we go. Revelation 3, 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church's Holy Spirit. Let us hear today what you have to say to the church here at Willowburn. In Jesus' name. What's different about the way Jesus addresses this church? I don't know if you noticed it. Maybe you've already noticed it. He has nothing good to say. He has not one thing good to say to this church. All the other churches, he has something good to say about what they've been up to. For instance, in Ephesus, he says, I know your hard work and perseverance. In Smyrna, he says, I know your afflictions, but you are rich. In Pergamum, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You have not renounced your faith in me. In Thyatira, he says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. In Sardis, he says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. In Philadelphia, I know your deeds. I have placed before you an open door. I know that you only have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. But in the church at Laodicea, Nothing good. Nothing good. All the other churches have something good going for them. 
but not Laodicea. And we really have to answer the, answer the question, why? Why is it that Jesus saved the worst for last? Why is it Jesus has nothing good to say to his church? What terrible persecution, you know, what, what terrible deception, what terrible apostasy would mean that Jesus says, I want to vomit you out? Pretty heavy stuff, guys. Remember at the start of Revelation, I said five-point safety harness on, not just your little lap sash. Five-point safety harness on. This is, this is big words for big people. Do you know what I mean? These are, these are tough words for tough people. These are words that we really need to, hurt, to hear. Now, what could be worse in Laodicea than the lost first love at Ephesus? What could be worse than the physical persecutions at Smyrna? Worse than the terrible corruption and immoralities at Pergamum, you know, where even Satan had his throne? Worse than the Jezebel spirit at Thyatira? Worse than only having a little strength at Philly? Like, what could be worse? What is it that caused them to have nothing good left in them? What is the greatest threat to their faith? What is the greatest threat to our faith? A, a caustic threat, a kind of a threat that anaesthetizes our faith. It, it makes us sleep. And this is a sad thing about it where people in this situation are not even aware. Remember, you, you say you're well-dressed. You think everything's okay. I've acquired wealth. What is it? What is this greatest threat? Let's just do a little Lonely Planet tour of Laodicea. Is that all right? You see Lonely Planet, you go and find these all cool places to look at. Apparently, uh, Kangaroo Island is in the top 10 this year down in South Australia. Um, so we're looking at uh, the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is now modern Turkey, as you know. And we're looking at Laodicea. Note that it's very close to, very close to Colossae. Okay, it's actually 15 kilometres up the road. Very, very close. And we're looking at this little church, and so I want to gather you in. Let's, let's come on a little tour with me, okay? So let's go in our mind's eye. As we walk into this city, these are real pictures here of the ruins, and you can already see some of the remnants of wealth there, the architecture, the pillars. So as you walk in with me, what you're going to see is very expensive architecture, state-of-the-art architecture. You're going to see affluence and riches. You're going to see the three things that the city is famous for. First of all, you will see a major banking centre, a major centre for commerce. Secondly, uh, in fact, that, that major centre, out of interest, was, was um, so well known that Cicero, you know, the famous Roman statesman and philosopher, he actually recommended it for exchanging money. You'll also see another centre for manufacturing, which was for manufacturing clothing and woolen carpets. And these were made especially from this glossy black wool that sheep had in the area. It was the only place you could get such clothes. And you will also see that it has a medical school. And in that medical school, they would produce literally a world-famous, empire-famous eye salve made from a pulverised rock. You would see advancing literature, scientific pursuits. You would see, in general, a comfortable, affluent, um, satisfied society. Sounds like a lovely place to live, doesn't it? Sounds a bit like many of our modern cities in the good parts of them. Now, keep coming with me on a tour, okay? And let's just say that you're invited into a little, uh, little house, and it's actually a house church. And so you're getting to know some of the Christian brothers and sisters there, and you go, hey, what's that letter over there? And you open it up. Maybe it's a scroll. Maybe it's on um, some sort of parchment. You open it up, and it's from Paul. 
you know, what are you doing with a letter from Paul? And one of the brothers says, hey, he sent us a letter. Did you know that Paul sent a letter to Laodicea? We don't know what's in it. <laughs> we never seen it. It disappeared. But he also sent them another letter, which we do have. And, it is, and we're told that in Colossians 4, 12. Um, now it says in, uh, in fact, I'll just read Colossians 4, 16 first. It says, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So we don't have that letter from Laodicea, but we have the church of Colossae. And if you look here back, just go back. Oh, in fact, I'll just read it to you. So this is at the end of Colossians. Paul says this, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. So this is him writing um, to the church at Colossians. But then he says this in verse 13, I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and uh, Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So this is the very beginnings of the church at Laodicea. And he says, read this letter. And he says other things in that letter in Colossians to Laodicea, which I think are very helpful in helping us understand what has happened to this church. For instance, in Colossians 3, he says, since then you have been raised with Christ Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then he says this, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now just answer this question in the back of your minds when you think about the seven churches. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed. All of those appear in the seven churches in one way or another. And the last one, greed, guess where that appears? I have acquired wealth. I am okay. I am in need of nothing. And then he says, because of this, the wrath of God is coming. So this was written to them. Now, another thing that you'll see is an aqueduct. And this is an actual picture that you're looking at of the Laodicean aqueduct that came from some springs nearby. Now, they weren't actually hot springs. So some, some, uh, it was originally thought they came from the hot springs at Hierapolis. They don't. That's been disproven now. But they did come from some springs nearby. So these uh, aqueducts were made out of stone. And as you can see there, they had a pipe. And they actually were piped to what you see there on your right, which looks like a big rock. Initially, that was actually almost like a big bubbler. It was made out of bricks. And over time, all the calcium deposits and so forth have made it look like a big rock. But essentially, if you're in Laodicea, so you're on my tour now in Laodicea, you see the aqueduct come in, you see this big bubbler in the centre of town with water coming out the top. That was their main water source, right near the gymnasium, right near the stadium. The waters of the nearby Lycus River were so muddy uh, that they were undrinkable and in fact they dried up for, for significant parts of the year. Now this aqueduct system is so crucial to the Laodiceans, you mess with it, you're going to pay $40,000 in today's terms. It was in Daenerys back then. They found recently in an archaeological site a marble stone saying that's how much you're going to pay if you mess with our water system. Now, if you were uh, just uh, down the road at Colossae, you had a nice, cool, cold, refreshing stream of water. Okay? Here in Laodicea, though, you had these pipes and this bubbler. Now, you're thirsty on your tour, aren't you? Do you want a drink? What happens to water 
that is piped for a significant dif uh, distance that ends up in some sort of storage container without chlorine. It becomes stagnant. It becomes lukewarm. It becomes tepid. And in fact, it can make you sick. What happens when you get sick from water? Who's been overseas? <laughs> you either vomit or it comes out the other end. So do you want to drink or not? Do you want to drink? It's got bacteria in it, it's tepid, it's lukewarm. Like I said, if you're at Colossae, 15 kilometres away, beautiful, uh, clean, fresh stream. If you're at Hieropolis, that's the hot springs, whoever called that out before, the water there is nice and hot, boiling hot. You can have spa baths in it. But here in Laodicea, the water the looks pretty, but it's useless in many cases. You can't drink it. It's not cold enough to drink. It's not fresh enough to drink. And you can't bathe in it because it's not hot enough. It's useless. Tepid, warm, and useless. So, Lonely Planet Tour over. But now you know the way in which the Laodiceans got their water, and you also know that they were proud of their commerce, their economy, their fine clothing, their medicinal eye salve, their health system, their riches, and their affluence. Now, if you're a church, a little house church in Laodicea, what do you think the greatest threat is going to be? There's no real persecutions here that we can tell. There doesn't even appear to be false teachings. There doesn't even appear to be this Jezebel spirit or this Balaam spirit that's in the, uh, in the church or in the, in the city. There's no throne of Satan nearby. So what's the problem here? The very, very bad, bad problem that means Jesus has nothing good to, to good to say. Let's do another tour. Let's do it with the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will take us on a tour, a lonely planet tour. The creator of the planet will take us on a lonely planet tour of Laodicea. This is his assessment, and this assessment, just, just listen to it. I know your deeds, Revelation 3.15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You are like your own water supply, Laodicea. You can't drink it because it's not cold enough. You can't bathe in it because it's not hot enough. It's useless, and you are too. All the metaphors that are used here are direct connections to what is going on in the city. And he says, I wish you were hot or cold. If you're hot, you'd be useful. If you're cold, you'd be useful. But you're not. And so just like that infected, tepid water, I'm going to vomit you out. So he's described there the state of the Laodicean church. He hasn't actually said why yet, though. And this is where we're getting to it now. The greatest threat to faith, the greatest threat to faith, this, this spiritual tepidness, this, this lukewarmness, this assessment that comes from the faithful and true witness now. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Do you see where he's gone? Do you see what the faithful and true witness is saying? You know, many scholars in the past have gone, it's probably better just to be cold rather than be halfway there and be half-baked. And, you know, many scholars have gone, it's way, way better, of course, to be uh, vigorous and energetic and boiling over in your faith. 
But most scholars nowadays see very clearly the connection between this useless water and the church. They had become a church useless. They had become a church that was so useless that the Lord Jesus was saying, I'm about to vomit you out. And when he makes his assessment, when he makes his assessment, he says, you're not rich. In the kingdom, you are not rich. You're actually pitiful, poor, blind, naked. And then he says, I counsel to you, you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. That's an allusion to Isaiah. Remember, come, buy without cost, milk. Uh, it's kind of a bit of a paradox. Buy something, but it's not going to cost you anything. And yet it's going to cost you everything. <laughs> that is the, the paradox of faith, isn't it? It'll cost you nothing, but it'll cost you everything. Freely you've been given. So freely give. Here's the gospel, freely given. And then he says, I counsel you in verse 18 um, to become rich and, and get white clothes to wear. We don't need to uh, be mystical or ambivalent or ambiguous about what white clothes are. We're told later on in Revelation they are the good works of the saints. If you are a person of faith and you love the Lord Jesus, then good works will bubble out of you and flow out of you. And the Lord says they're like uh, making a fashion statement in the kingdom is doing good works. You don't have to wear, what's a good fashion label? Armani, I don't know. You want to, you want to wear Armani in the kingdom? Make your works visible. Make them not, not, not out of a self-righteous, look at me, look at me way, but out of a loving, serving, uh, faithful kind of way, dependent on God's Holy Spirit, dependent on his power. And evidently there was none of this. Laodicea just looked like a little club. The church at Laodicea was just a club. They didn't look any different. They had the same values. They chased after exactly the same things with the same level of dedication and fervour. But they didn't chase after the things of the kingdom. And so when the faithful and true witness says, I counsel you to buy from me gold, I counsel you to buy to get white clothes and to cover your shameful nakedness and to get salve to put on your eyes so that you can really see your true state. Wow, we need that too, don't we? We need that too. Because do you really think that we don't live in the same kind of environment? We do. And do you remember what Paul said? I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that you may be encouraged so that you may have the full riches, get it, get it? The full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. So he says, your real riches is knowing the Lord Jesus. It's one of my favourite Bible verses from uh, Jeremiah where the Lord says, let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he knows and understands me, the Lord. I am the one who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on the earth. You want riches? That's rich. That's better than a billion dollars in NAB. And somehow or another, the church at Laodicea had got this messed up. You know, he told them to set their hearts on things above. There's nothing wrong with riches in themselves, but as soon as they become your end state, your full stop in life, they are deadly, deadly to your soul because you have depended on something that is inherently corruptible and is going to rot. You're, you're actually um, depending on a, a thing that's rotting, that's literally breaking down, oxidising, rusting, changing. Entropy is going to get it. It's going to get you. You can't, you can't as a spiritual being Put your faith, hope and love in a thing, in riches, in wealth, in materialism. 
the greatest threat to our faith, the greatest threat to our faith, if you look at this progression through the churches of Revelation, is materialism, comfort, affluence, stuff. We've got the best clothes, the best healthcare. Do you know you're way better than any person at Laodicea? Even the government of Laodicea, you're way better off, way better off, way more comfortable. And that's why I said before, you are fighting this internally all the time. This threat will be with you in this society for the rest of your life. The ongoing threat to allow your heart to get hard towards the things of God and to be soft and open towards the things of now. And again, there's nothing wrong with stuff. But as soon as it becomes a God thing, a full stop in your life, that's it. That's all I want. And the things of God become sort of faint and dim. You're in a dangerous situation. And this will be our temptation for little Willowburn. It's already infecting in many ways and changing some of the things that we want to do. Sometimes it's just a matter of, no, I'm comfortable this morning. I'm not going to church. That's this same threat at work. And then before you know, there's been a year go by and you haven't been at church. But man, you're busy. You're busy trying to pay off your loan. You're busy doing these other things. You see it? Like it's there all the time. It's such a caustic effect. It's nothing new. Do you know what brought God's people down? You know what brought God's people down over and over again? Just as they're about to go into the promised land, this is what he says. This is what Moses says or what the Lord says. Don't forget the laws of God that I'm giving you this day. And then he says this. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and and all you have is multiplied, so when they get affluent in the promised land, watch out, he's saying, because your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Later, Jeremiah says, since you trust in your deeds and riches, you too will be taken captive. The exact thing that God told them not to do is exactly what happened. They trusted in their riches and in their deeds and they became nothing. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests to bring the good news of the kingdom to the whole world. And they just became a kingdom of self. You know, Jesus' parables, there are way more parables and teachings about this problem the rich young ruler, the eye of the needle, the steward of the house left behind to care. There's way more about this problem from Jesus than any other problem like false teaching. Paul, he talks about greed many, many times. We just saw it as he talked to the church at Colossae. Over and over again, don't trust in riches, in material things. I want to um, just bring out the second article now. I'm sure some of you have seen this on your Twitter feed, if you're on Twitter or on Facebook. The smashed avocado debate. That's not about whether you should have it smashed or what's the other version you can have? Spread? I don't know. I don't like spread myself. So Bernard Salt, he writes for The Australian. And it was supposed to be a bit tongue-in-cheek, but this kind of eruption of uh, Twitter rebukes and Facebook rebukes and counter-blogging ensued as a part of this debate. So basically he writes about... Um, wanting to um, recruit a whole bunch of middle-aged moralizers together. And he starts off by having a go at Wygen. And he says this, I'll just read it to you. Actually, he finishes off. 
Um, but all of this is mere ephemera. It gets worse. I've seen young people order smashed avocado with crumbled feta on a five grain toasted bread at $22 a pop and more. I can afford to eat this for lunch because I'm middle-aged and have raised my family. How can young people afford to eat like this? Shouldn't they be economising by eating at home? How often are they eating out? $22 several times a week could go towards a deposit on a house. So then there's this, like, like I said, counter-tweeting and people writing blogs and, and he's, he basically had set up this divide. You're either under 40 or over 50. So for me, I'm 45. I'm right in the centre. I, I feel free to comment on both sides. Uh, which is often the way with us ex-gens. Who's an ex-gen? Where are you? Yeah, woo. Uh, so we're in the middle, <laughs> listening to the baby boomer have a go at the Y-gen and the Y-gen having to go back and there's quoting stats and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I'm not going to comment on either side. I could. Look, as a Christian, you could get caught up in that and maybe you could have a go at Bernard for not showing a bit more grace towards the Y-gen. And maybe you could have a little bit of go at the Y-gen by saying, hey, maybe you should get off your butt and do this and do that or whatever. But which Y-gen? There's Y-gen's big gen, you know, like... <laughs> Some are like that maybe, but some aren't. So anyway, you can get all caught up in that. But whenever you see this kind of debate and you see like all the um, comments going up and the retweets going up, you know you've touched something that's important in society, haven't you? It's, it's a little bit silly, but at the same time, and it's not just about the smashed avocado because it was all about the house as well, the Australian dream, the house. And I guess what I want to say is that if smashed avocado and getting a house is so important that there's lots and lots of Twitter feeds about it, there's lots of blogs, there's lots of commentary, then we've kind of missed the point, haven't we? Because a smashed avocado, is smashed avocado going to feed your soul? Is it going to take away that sense of purposelessness, that sense of meaninglessness, that sense of who cares if I get the best house and eat smashed avocado every single day? Who cares? And for us as Christians, you know, if we've caught up in that lifestyle, if that has become number one for us, we are like tepid water. The, the, the world doesn't want to drink that kind of water. They want to see that you're sold out for something more. And that brings me back to uh, that first article. This turn of phrase is so good. The perfect pursuit of nothingness. The pursuit that leaves us hopeless. It seems like such a comprehensive, sophisticated pursuit, but it's the perfect pursuit of nothingness. The church at Laodicea were into their smashed avocado and their brick veneer lifestyle as though that's all that there was. They didn't look any different. They had forgotten to search for greater things. They had forgotten to set their heart on kingdom things. They had forgotten that they are emissaries, ambassadors of the king. I deliberately made the avocado look very, very small because I still like avocado, but I don't want it to become king and kingdom in my life. And I don't want the brick veneer house to become king and kingdom. And I don't want the pursuit of wealth and riches to become king and kingdom. And we have to be so careful of this. You want the new phone? Do you really need the new phone? <laughs> Maybe you do. Maybe yours is all busted and broken. But if you're just up for the latest upgrade, you want a pan optics um, lens on your... No, you don't need that. And be careful because there's something, isn't there something in our spirit that just, you know, you go and buy something, there's a sense of happiness and joy. Um, I'm sure you know what I mean. But when the Lord Jesus comes along, he says, watch out because if you have made that your first love, you're poor, pitiful and blind. Now, Revelation 5, we'll get to this later, says, They, the saints, sang a new song, 
You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests. That's why in a few weeks we're going to talk about the kingdom. We're going to remember that we as a church are like an embassy. We live in a strange land. We are waiting for the new creation. We are waiting for all things to be made right. We are waiting for... um, the kingdom to come. We pray for that every day. It's already begun with the cross. And when the, when the world looks in, they should see in your house and, and in the uh, gathering here, they should see emissaries and ambassadors and they should see that different value system. They should see that, that different set of habits. Uh, they should see what it looks like. like you, you are like little movie trailers. Do you realise that? Of what the kingdom will be like when the Lord Jesus has put down all these ridiculous rebellions. That's awesome. Well, it's a, such a magnificent, such a magnificent dream that the Lord Jesus has for us, isn't it? You are, um, you are emissaries. You are champions. Uh, you know, I wrote for my other daughter. Oh, get away now. Uh, I wrote from someone will know what I'm talking about there. I'm sure uh, other people won't. That's good. I was trying to be subtle. Um, you know, I, wrote, I just I saw her there putting her last assignment in. I just said, "You're going to be a champion of justice." We all should be champions of justice. Justice League of Willowburn. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like there should be that element of otherness, of unrealness, of like, wow, there's something about you that's driving you that's beyond the here and now. He has made us to be a kingdom of priests, to love and to serve the world. We are here to love. We are here to serve. We are here to grow. That's what we are. We are part of the king and the kingdom. And this brings me as I finish the sermon and we roll into communion, the greatest hope for faith. Because Laodicea was a mess. They were a bunch of smashed avocado eating, brick veneer living Christians. They'd lost their way. They were a mess. But they were about to experience the greatest hope. No other religion has this hope. If they were Muslims, they're done. Out of there. Buddhists, no. No real uh, reality to that. They just need to give up on their hopes and dreams and so forth, become part of the otherness, the nothingness. Hindu deity, they're probably Dalits or something. Anyway, who cares? You know, again, I respect those world religions, but at the same time, they don't hold any sort of weight over this, this great hope. Do you know what the greatest hope is, guys? To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Those I love, I rebuke and discipline. Wow. Wow. That is something special. That is why I'm a Christian. That is why I stand up here. And over many years, I want to preach about this, about this person, the faithful and true witness. No other God would come and knock on the door of a church like Laodicea, figuratively speaking, and say, here I am. He could just do the thermonuclear blast, just finish it all there. Or just, you know, open up a doorway to hell or whatever. No. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realise how special he is? How wonderful he is, like that he would come for you when you were like that? That is the greatest hope for our faith, that when we have gone down that track, that he will come for us. And he says, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. No other does that. But wait, there's more. You know, in terms of doing these words, what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, he says there, earnestly repent. 
And then he says this, he, he gives this promise. So I just want you to understand repentance for a minute. Everything in the Bible about repentance, think of this picture of Zacchaeus. Do you remember what Zacchaeus did? He said, I'm sorry, I robbed people. And then what did he do? He did something about it. Repentance is not just saying sorry, my brothers and sisters. So if you're in your heart going, yeah, Lord, I'm sorry, I've got caught up in some of this kind of congested, clogged way of thinking and, and a bit materialistic and blah, blah. Okay, that's fine. Now do something about it. Because yes, he will come for us, but to obey is better than sacrifice, isn't it? <coughs> so be earnest and repent. So that means you say sorry to God. If you've hurt other people, you say sorry to them, and then you do something about it. You do whatever you can in your power to make it right in, and in the power that God gives you. And then this is what he promises. Like I said, wait, there's more. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Like if I said that to you without reading it, you would be saying, Adrian, sit down. You're speaking heretical things. The Bible just has these protrusions into our paradigms and we skip over them. So do you see what he's saying there? Uh, to him overcomes, you can sit on my throne with me. You can rule with me. This is our Lord Jesus as well. He's not even like a dictator in the sky holding onto his throne. He's inviting you to share in the, in the, in the throne. Now, I don't know what that, he'll still be God, don't get me wrong. He'll still be king. But to say I'll share that with you, just as I overcome, overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Wow, I really, oh Lord Jesus, help each of us to overcome. Help us to overcome. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love that. There's Jesus at the door. There's the Father who has sent the Son. And there's the Spirit who is saying, let him who has an ear, let, let, him, let him hear. Let, let the person who's, who's really feeling that sense of meaninglessness now in, in all the materialism, in the smashed avocado, the brick veneer, the new car, the new Audi, is just feeling an emptiness. It's like, listen, that's, that's your listening ear that the Spirit has given you. Listen now, listen. To him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne. Wow, the grandeur of that promise is extraordinary. The greatest hope for faith, and I'd just like us to prepare our hearts for communion now, is that the one who comes for us, think about this, he came from the ultimate place of satisfaction, the ultimate comfort, you know, in heaven, in that heavenly realm, in that, in that supernatural kind of eight, ninth dimensional realm, I don't know what it is, but uh, he was in perfect unity with the, with, the, with the Father and the Son. He came to a cross for us. He didn't get himself a nice studio apartment on the Jordan. He could have had smashed Avo himself, wrote books and blogs. He could have done it that way, ran conferences. No, he gave it all up for 33 years. Imagine how hard it would have been for the God of the universe to be limited to a, a sweating body and then to become a bleeding body scourged on a cross. That is our magnificent Lord Jesus Christ. That is our exhilarating hope for faith. Let's remember him in communion. Father, I thank you because though we were deaf and dumb and though we were bloated on our own satisfactions, you refuse to leave us that way. And even now, you will continue to knock. I pray, Lord, that we would listen while you are knocking there will come a time when it stops. 
May we have repented and turned to you. And Lord, I ask for extra grace and extra power into the future. We live in this world that is so in need of a message of hope. We have it. I pray that we'd live it. I pray, Lord, that we'd feed on your word. That, Lord, we would enjoy our fellowship one with another, that we'd pray for one another, that we would truly be your embassy here in this world and that there'd be many that see and want to know more. Help us to serve our brothers and sisters in Adam that are out there right now who need to become brothers and sisters in Jesus. Help us, Lord Jesus, I pray. We love you. We remember now, Lord, your body broken for us. We remember your blood spilt for us to secure once and for all that oneness, that intimacy, that relationship with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.